0: Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby, Boo Barney and Bradley. Don't forget to goat leggings! Well, parmé all over the place. get the money and i need get the woman get there's always magic at the movies what's
1: in the basket <gasps> well what can we say look uh, did we steal mickey rooney's bones maybe have we been on the run for the last four months perhaps it's been a hard year for everyone we're just trying our best and that's all we can do that is all we can do look I, I mean i can't say we're coming back bigger and better we're coming back bigger i guess
2: yeah, because big. of the subject of this <laughs> yeah, very big as Everybody. big as a house
3: i believe
0: is the line Okay. At, at that that right. yeah that's a track all right look at the size of that thing he must be as big as a house this way. Yeah, come on, fellas,
2: and keep those guns He's us. He's Hello, everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. Back again, Too Fast, Too Furious, <laughs> season two. Let's do it. Uh, I am Amelia, and as always, I'm joined by Candace, who we finally oh. got out of a hostage situation. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and Tiff. Hey. We'll just say we didn't pay any money. She just talked too much, and they got sick of her. Let her go, so... There were puppets involved. There's always puppets involved. As we'll find out yet again.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Look, this was a decision you made completely independently of me.
2: It is. I wanted to come back with a bang and I'll just preface this entire thing by saying this is by no means an exhaustive deep dive into this film because that would make this episode, you know, five hours long. And also I'm very lazy, so... Uh it's sort of just a broad overview of how this particular film came to be and essentially changed the course of film uh for the rest of time. We're so... talking of
3: course about <laughs> The Fireball 1950 starring <laughs> Mickey Rooney.
2: Oh, we should mention that we did try to record an episode on the Fireball with Mickey Rooney last weekend, and I don't know what it is with us and Mickey Rooney episodes, but they're just deeply cursed, and there were technical issues that meant that we just couldn't hear anything Candace was saying, um, so we couldn't record that episode. Well, what are we talking about today if we're not talking about the uh, irrepressible Mickey Rooney? Previously... On this podcast, I've talked a lot about iconic imagery in film, like with Harold Lloyd and his clock face. Made sure to enunciate that one. And, um, you know, stuff like Poltergeist and the thing with their very iconic imagery. And today is no different. I'm going to talk about a film that has become almost emblematic of the early sound era, uh, an arrestive, Impressive, fantastically intriguing image that continues to wow audiences today. And it is the image of a great ape perched on the spire of New York's Empire State Building, batting away planes with one hand and grasping a screaming blonde in the other that has become bigger than anyone making it had ever anticipated and left an impact on culture that is really hard to quantify because it is just so big and wide-reaching. Yes, today we are talking about the father of all horrors, the monster of all monsters, 1933's King Kong.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here tonight to tell you a very strange story. A story so strange that no one will believe it. But ladies and gentlemen, seeing is believing. And we, my partners and I, have brought back the living proof of our adventure. An adventure in which 12 of our party met horrible deaths. And now, ladies and gentlemen... Before I tell you any more, I'm going to show you the greatest thing your eyes have ever beheld. He was a king and a god in the world he knew. But now he comes to civilization. Merely a captive. A show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong, the eighth wonder of the world.
2: So I think even now, almost a 100 years after it's released, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who didn't know at least the basic outline of King Kong. But I'll just breeze over it. It's good yarn. So number one is that this film has some of the coolest opening titles of sort of this era of film. Very deco. It's kind of everything you imagine when you picture a film from 1933. It's like, Bam! It's this. So it's a perfect little time capsule. But we begin uh, in New York with our nature-based filmographer Carl Denham trying to put things together for his latest film. He's chartered a ship called The Venture, which is captained by Captain Engelhorn. As he's straightening out the last few details, we come to discover that he's having a lot of trouble getting a lead for his film it's sort of implied that other exterior forces are making it very difficult for him to cast this leading lady i don't know what does he say that like lots of them are very ugly um. <laughs> and he just doesn't want to cast them no i think he's like looking at the like soup kitchen lines and he's like Ugh,
3: not well, much chop here i mean can you blame him?
2: I mean, he's no prize peach himself.
3: And he doesn't want a romance angle in his films. He, do- he doesn't enjoy it, but he's being pressured to do so for box office purposes. He mostly makes like adventure movies.
2: So it's as he's looking for his lead actress that he comes across, Anne Darrow, who is a uh, down in her luck New York street urchin, who he finds at sort of a street-side fruit vendor, when she's accused of stealing something because she picks up an apple or something and Carl Denham is like, Oh no, she didn't steal anything I saw. And then he goes and he, he treats her to a meal and is like, Hey, have I got a job for you? And he promises her this sort of adventure. They're going to go on a boat and doesn't really have that much acting experience. She says she's done a, a bit of extra work, but that's it. And that doesn't seem to phase Denham. Uh, I don't think he really values acting <laughs> and then I don't know the way that it sort of plays out is that Anne has like a moment of hesitation where she's like Are you sure this is gonna, not gonna be like some weird kind of rapey trap that I'm walking into uh and Carl Denham's like no it's not trust me and then Anne's like yeah more good let's go it's money and adventure and fame
0: it's the thrill of a lifetime and a long sea voyage it starts at six o'clock tomorrow morning No, wait. I... I don't understand. You must tell me. I do want the job, so but... I I can't... Oh, I see. No, you've got me wrong. This is strictly business.
3: Well, I only
0: wanted to... Sure, sure you did. I got a little excited and I forgot you didn't understand. Listen, I'm Carl Denham. Ever hear of me? Yes, yes. You make moving pictures in jungles and places. That's right. And I picked you for the lead in my next picture. We sail at six. Where to? A long way off. Now listen, Ann. I'm on the level. No funny business.
1: What do I have to do?
0: Just trust me and keep your chin up.
2: Uh, which... I mean, I guess if you're in the middle of the economic depression, you're a bit desperate anyway, but
3: like... I think there's two things here. One, there's the implication that maybe a slightly more seasoned actress would see through this, you know what I mean? We would find a a little bit more concern, whereas again, she's desperate. She doesn't have a lot of experience in the the industry either. And also two, there's just the implication because it's on a boat.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean, what do we need a mattress for? Why in the hell do you think we just spent all that
3: money
0: on a boat? The whole purpose of buying the boat in the first place was to get the ladies nice and tipsy topside so we can take them to a nice, comfortable place below deck and, you know, they can't refuse because of the implication. Oh, uh, okay. You had me go in there for the first part. The second half kind of threw me. Well, dude, dude, think about it. She's out in the middle of
3: nowhere with some dude she barely knows. You know, she looks around, her. what does she see? Nothing but open ocean.
0: Ah, there's nowhere for me to run. What am I going to do, say no? Okay. (laughs) That seems really dark now. No, no, it's not dark. You're misunderstanding me, bro.
3: I think I am. Yeah, you are. Because if the girl said no, then the answer obviously is no. No. But the thing is, is she's not gonna say no. She would never say no because of the implication.
2: Anyway, so she agrees to go on this big adventure. And when she comes aboard, she meets our first mate, Jack Driscoll, who, when we first meet him, he's just yelling at the rest of the crew in something that I guess is English, but certainly doesn't sound it. Hey, you
0: men on that winch. Get down below on the deck and help with
2: these hatches. Hurry this lion, forward. Forward, you fireman, up here! And he's a bit of a brute. He wears his pants up to his nipples. He's definitely not about a woman being on a boat or, like, any of this movie business. He's just a boatman. He's also a little bit standoffish with uh, Denim because Denim hasn't actually told them where they're going. He's just given them some kind of vague direction. And it's not until much later in the journey that he actually reveals that they're going to something called Skull Island, which is, I mean, not foreboding at all. So while they're on this trip, they have a couple of screen tests and there's a little bit of chemistry between Anne and Jack. Allegedly. Alleged I don't see it, but it doesn't matter. They, they, it's there because the filmmakers tell us it's there. <laughs> and not a whole lot of acting goes on in a movie that's about another movie being made. Let's just say that. Finally, they arrive on the island and they discover – a village with a local indigenous population who are in the midst of a ritual where they're sacrificing a young woman who they call the Bride of Kong. And they try to like surreptitiously film this sort of religious festival, but they're caught in the act. And that when the chief sees Anne, who was a white blonde woman, they're like, oh, let's exchange... Six of our local women for the blonde woman. But the Captain Engelhorn and Jack are like, no way, no deal. Whereas Denham is like, <laughs> hang on a second, let's see. And then they all go back to the boat, thoroughly shaken. And it's that night that Jack and Anne confess their love for one another, but it's like, okay, if you say so. Then... Anne goes missing because she's kidnapped by the locals and offered to Kong. They're all rushing around the boat trying to find her and they realise that she's been taken. And she's been strung up on this sort of podium on the other side of this huge wall that has a big gate in it. And there's something rumbling through the forest coming from the deep jungle to get her. And that's when we finally see, 46 minutes in, the titular character, King Kong. So King Kong is a giant gorilla. For those who (laughs) might not
3: know, anyone who's been living in a bunker in Nebraska for the last forty-seven years.
2: Well, maybe you've just like come out from being Amish
1: and you've (laughs) never seen a bunker in Nebraska. Yeah, maybe you just stole Mickey Rooney's bones and you have to hide from the feds. Look, maybe you haven't seen it. I'm we're equal opportunities
2: here for the young and uninitiated. I'll let you know now that King Kong is a big gorilla. And he takes Anne and carries her off into this vast jungle uh, while the crew follow her in. And when they're, like, sort of going through the big gate, there's a guy in the crew who just has a little backpack on that says gas bombs (laughs) in really (laughs) nice sign-painted letters. I wonder who in the prop department had to, like, paint gas bombs onto a little backpack, but... That's the job I'd get if I was making this movie. So on their rescue mission, they encounter a series of sort of unbelievable, wondrous, but also very dangerous things. They find that there are still dinosaurs uh, alive on this island. There are big creatures, much like in the style of Kong, that are far beyond their normal size. And, I mean, a lot of this is met with them simply open-firing on a whole lot of dinosaurs which isn't great <laughs> but the dinosaurs definitely get their own back by basically annihilating most of the crew uh, in scenes which are really gory especially for 1933 um, which is fucking awesome I'll, I'll say that meanwhile Anne is with kong and kong has to i mean i don't know how kong lives day to day on this island but he gets hassled by a fucking heat load of different animals so he has to take on like giant lizards he has to take on a t-rex and they're like really intense choreographed fight scenes that he's engaging in all the while Anne is screaming her head off in horror at these scenes Uh, and i'll just say it's fucking awesome the best scenes of the movie is when kong is fighting shit it ends up that only jack and Carl denham have survived and somehow make it to Anne and rescue her before getting her back to the village. And it's when they're back at the village and Kong finally reaches them that Denim's like, oh, but what if, now hear me out, what if we took him back with us? And for some reason, they agree to it, even though Carl Denim is absolutely a sociopath. And they gas bomb Kong and take him back to New York City. So now we're back in new york city and they're presenting this eighth wonder of the world on broadway and people are flocking to see him and we hear this one bit of dialogue that's like i paid 20 bucks better be good hey what's Dunham got anyway? well it better be
0: good after all this valley
2: heavens what a mob
0: well you would come and these tickets cost me 20 bucks
2: we looked it up 20 bucks in 1933 would have been around $400. And at this point most of the audience thinks it's just going to be a movie too. Which is like I definitely wouldn't be fucking paying that much even if I knew <laughs> it was going to be King Kong that I was
3: seeing. It's just too much. They didn't have video games back then, okay? They didn't have your Final Fantasies and your Zelda's. They loved the circus. They were super into the circus back then.
2: (laughs) But it was also the depression. Who has fucking $400 to spare?
3: You know, uh, first-run movies, this is another thing, too, that's gone away with time. This is completely unrelated. Now, we really don't have, uh, we still have some second-run theaters, I'm guessing, around the world. We still have them here in America. But back then, first-run, second-run, there was a a very clear distinction between the two. And so, whereas when you went to go see a movie at a second-run theater, I don't know, a month, two months after it came out... Sometimes longer, depending on how long a movie could be held over for. Um, I'm totally talking about it out of my ass. But I think Seventh Heaven was held over in New York at its first run theaters for like four months or something. So it could be a long time before you actually got to see the movie as a poor person. But um, at a second run theater, it, you know, it might end up costing you a nickel or something. But a first run ticket would be really expensive. Like the tickets for Ben-Hur first run were like three bucks. So yeah, people were paying, you know, hundreds of the equivalent of hundreds of dollars to go to the movies.
2: Insane. Yeah. That's fucking insane. I, it costs like, a movie ticket here costs $28 and I have not been to the cinema for years. Would you pay
3: $28 to see King Kong in real life? No. Well, would you pay $28 to see?
2: I believe I paid around that to see Safety Last on the big screen. But I mean, but the eighth wonder of the world isn't good enough for you. Your discerning taste. Uh, look, I I think it's also about the kind of audience that would be going to go see King Kong as opposed to any other kind of audience. It's definitely a type of audience that would be going.
3: I feel like we've no one's ever maybe somebody has probably talked about the the meta element here of like people thinking that they're going to go see a movie about King Kong, but it's not actually a movie about King Kong, but they're in a movie about King Kong. If this were released like three years ago, there'd be lots of like insufferable Twitter (laughs) commentary. (laughs) If Christopher Uh, Nolan did it. If Christopher Nolan did it, people would be pissing and shitting themselves in their pull-ups.
1: I want to know what denim's original idea was and what that movie was supposed to be because you will note that he has one actor and there does not appear to be a script of any kind is it just like a nature film with with fairy like i i
3: think that's supposed to be it ethnographic filmmaking is very hot at that point in time
1: yeah i feel like
2: it was more just he was going to take someone and put her in this situation <laughs> and that would be it that would be enough like it's a bit more of a like ad lib kind of situation it's a
3: bit found footagey
2: you know yeah it's the original blair witch
3: <laughs> god i wish blair witch i ended up with a big ass monkey <laughs> and not just like some guy standing in a corner
2: so now we're in new york all these people are excited to see this movie that's not actually going to be a movie the curtains open and we see denim in front of king kong who's chained to um this big apparatus on the stage denim is like hey take a look at this guy um also here's and darrow who entranced the beast and she comes on stage also jack driscoll is invited on stage and all these photographers are going crazy taking photos and that sets kong off um He's
3: not set off when he hears that Anne and Driscoll are married now. That's not what sets him off.
2: Well, they're not married yet. They're about to be married. The next day oh, they're getting Oh,
3: married. I'm so- That's He's drag. still got a Sorry. chance. He's
2: still got a
1: chance. He's still
3: got a chance, yeah. So he's going to pull a Julia Roberts and my best friend's wedding. <laughs>
1: Mrs. And- <laughs>
2: Bouvier.
1: <laughs>
2: but, yeah, so the – they well, what Denim says is that he thinks – that the photography is being interpreted by Kong as people trying to hurt Anne, which makes him go crazy, and he breaks free of his restraints. And obviously everyone is in a panic. Jack and Anne go upstairs because they're in a hotel and trying to keep Anne safe, whereas Kong begins essentially a rampage trying to get to Anne. He, like, reaches into a hotel room, pulls out a woman and realizes it's not Anne and he sort of throws her to the ground <laughs> and then he he finds the right hotel room and <laughs> Jack grabs a chair and is like, I got this, and is immediately knocked the fuck out by Kong. It's like, <laughs> fucking fat lot of good you did. Talk he shit, takes, hit. He takes Anne and goes through the city before ending up at the Empire State Building. And he begins climbing. And it's sort of, this is the, I guess, most iconic moment of the film, where he is on the Empire State Building and on the ground, Jack and Denim decide, planes! He doesn't have planes, but we have planes. Let's attack him with planes. Which doesn't seem like the best thing for ensuring Anne's safety, but they do it anyway. And we see the planes shooting at Kong as he tries to, like, bat them away. But eventually he's overcome with gunfire and he drops Anne. Anne is rescued by Jack and Kong falls from the Empire State Building to his death. As they make their way back down, Denim pushes through the crowd that sort of gathered at Kong's corpse, and he's like, Oh, I'm Carl Denham. And like, they're like, Oh, it's Carl Denham. Uh, and they let him through. And a policeman says, Oh, you know, it looks like the planes got him. Uh, and then Denham says,
0: Oh, no, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the, Kill the beast.
2: And it's like, Actually, <laughs> I think it could have been you. by taking taking this giant gorilla out of his home and then also being like hey we've got planes let's shoot him down i feel like you had a big hand in it (laughs) all right well where does king kong really begin well when daddy
3: kong (laughs) and mommy kong love each other well there had to
2: be a mommy kong somewhere because the sequel is son of kong so Unless they reproduce like asexually, like we're supposed to believe Godzilla does in the uh, Maddie B version of Godzilla. Then there has to be some kind of mummy Kong somewhere. You
3: know, I've never seen the Matthew Broderick Godzilla, but I prefer to think that Matthew Broderick is the vessel (laughs) for Godzilla. Like a seahorse. So maybe Matthew Broderick is involved in this. Maybe. He is the mother of the son of Kong. Have you ever seen Matthew Broderick and King Kong in the same room?
2: No. <laughs> Wouldn't that work against your argument if they've never been
3: in the same room? <laughs> I'm saying you've never seen them in the same room, but it doesn't mean they're not getting up to extracurricular activities when you're not
2: there. Well, this certainly is um, quite the fan fiction you've cooked. <laughs> he, he killed a man. So did Kong. <laughs> sorry God, that's what
3: i'm saying <laughs> they have a lot in common
2: anyway where did the film find its beginnings is really the question here so throughout uh film history there had well up until this point at least there had been a long tradition of jungle films uh inspired by the growing western i'm gonna say western also white interest in these places uh people and animals that hadn't they hadn't previously been exposed to uh, jungle films like 1913's beasts in the jungle uh, 1918's tarzan of the apes and the lost world in 1925 all helped to build the genre up and cement its popularity within the movie going public these films also introduced a raft of impressive special effects that would later be put to work in King Kong. It's important to note right up top that with this fervent interest in jungle films and narratives, uh, it's closely tied to the incredibly destructive and exploitative history of white colonialism and exoticism. And this is something that is displayed across film and print and most destructively in real life, where people and animals were displayed as oddities for wealthy white people to go and ogle. And this exploitation and its ramifications is still something we're grappling with today. Uh, and it's important for us to acknowledge this specifically in relation to King Kong, because there are more than a few red flags that I'll expand upon later. But you can kind of see a lot of these realities uh, existing within the plot and how certain elements are depicted in King Kong particularly when it comes to its uh, depiction of Indigenous peoples. In terms of when the idea itself came to be, according to one of the directors, Marion C. Cooper, the idea began with him. Cooper is a very interesting fellow. He was born in 1893 in Jacksonville, Florida, which, I mean...
3: (laughs) Already got a rough start.
2: (laughs) Uh, He was born Marion Caldwell Cooper and he dreamed of being an explorer. In interviews, Cooper said that he had been inspired by Paul du Chalus. Paul du Chalus. Explorations and adventures in equatorial Africa, which led to a lifelong fascination with gorillas and nature in general. And he did See uh, his fair share of adventure in his life before Kong. Uh, he enlisted into the Georgia National Guard in 1916 to combat Pancho Villa in Mexico. Pancho Villa, for those who don't know, was a very prominent general in the Mexican revolutionary movement.
3: That's a that's a that's a very Caucasian pronunciation you just gave us there,
2: admirer. I'm very sorry. It's not something that I've ever been exposed to before. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Pancho Villa.
2: Well, I mean, let's just have at a caveat. I am very sorry for any names that I mispronounced during this. But yeah, after being in the Georgia National Guard, he was called home where he began writing for the El Paso Herald, and then when he returned to service, he was sent to the milita- military aeronautic school in Atlanta where he graduated at the top of his class. Then in 1917, he was sent to France. But during an incident in flight school, he hit his head and was knocked out during a 200-foot dive. And afterwards, he was so severely shaken up, he had to relearn how to fly. If I was him, I would not be getting in another plane. But guys were just built differently back then, I guess. From here, he would fly as a DH-4 bomber pilot until being shot down in December 1918. His plane crash landed and he suffered burns um, and was presumed dead. He was captured by the Germans and taken into a prisoner reserve hospital, however. So thankfully, though, that wasn't that long before the war ended and he was returned home. He would continue flying after the First World War and supported the Kosciuszko Squadron during the Polish-Soviet War. Again, in 1920, his plane was shot down and he would spend nearly nine months as a prisoner of war in a Soviet PAW camp. Somehow he managed to escape the camp, but not before writing an autobiography while interned called Things Men Die For. Uh, And his experiences were made into a Polish film titled The Starry Squadron. However, after the Second World War, all copies of this film was destroyed by the soviets because they saw it as anti-soviet propaganda now for me that's quite enough excitement for one (laughs) lifetime. you
3: could just (laughs) retire
2: (laughs) um i mean being a prisoner of war twice uh, and being shot down in my plane twice that's enough but it was not so for cooper and
1: at this point he was 12 years old (laughs)
3: where are all the cowards um, back then i know it's because you don't end up in the in you know in historical record but where are the people like us who are like that's enough i'm not gonna do that
2: you know cowards never cause any fucking issues they just chill out and do their own thing
3: i'm like where's the guy who's like i'm just gonna lay here and i'm gonna play dead you know <laughs> and then hopefully i'll be able to get back to my candy store in pennsylvania like where's that guy because that's me
2: well you know? he would have just been at his candy store in pennsylvania Look, they're the ones who got all the work done at the end of the day. Kept the gears going. So his fascination with the parts here too unknown would see him becoming a journalist for the New York Times and eventually see him traveling abroad to write articles for Asia magazine. And for one trip in particular, he would be paired with Ernest Schodzak, who would become his frequent collaborator. Now, Ernest Schoedzak also had a pretty wild life. He was born in 1893 in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and ran away from home at age 14 and worked with road gangs. He eventually grew up to be, uh, six foot five and was nicknamed Shorty. Uh, he got his start in films working as a cameraman for Max Sennett in 1914 and would continue working as a cameraman during World War I, serving in the Signal Corps of the U.S. Army in France. He flew in combat missions and his eyesight would be severely damaged during combat but this did not stop him working as a cameraman Uh, and he continued to work on films in Europe after the war helping refugees escape Poland during the Polish-Russian Wars and the Greco-Turkish War before being hired as a cameraman for the New York Times. Though both Shodzak and Cooper worked for the New York Times, they didn't collaborate until they went on an expedition together in 1925 with Marguerite Harrians. This expedition would eventually be turned into one of the earliest ethnographic films, Grass, in 1925. Grass is a documentary film that follows a branch of the Bakhtiari tribe of Lurs in Persia, again, Very sorry for my pronunciation. Uh, As they make a seasonal journey to better pastures. From here, the pair would spend 18 months in the jungle to create Chang, a drama of the wilderness that depicts a man's survival in the northern jungles of Thailand, which was then Siam. While producing the film, stampeding elephants that were featured in the movie Almost Ran Over Shodzak and his crew. And it paid off as the film was a big hit and one of the biggest releases of 1928. They would also work together on 1928's version of The Four Feathers, which starred Fay Wray, Richard Ireland, and Bill Powell. And it is notable as being one of the last major silent motion pictures. Cooper decided to embark on the adaptation of the novel The Four Feathers, as it was one of the only books in his possession during his time in the Kosciuszko Squadron, and also parallels his own life, which I get the feeling that Cooper's a little bit of an egomaniac. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, you have to
3: have a pretty high opinion of yourself to continue to be like, I deserve... To survive the situation that I put myself in, you gotta rely on yourself to a degree to get yourself into those scrapes, and then out of those scrapes, you gotta have a pretty healthy self confidence, which is why we would never get in these situations in the first place.
2: Oh, absolutely. No, I'm just reading this stuff makes me tired. I'm just like, (laughs) I would not be doing all this. Like, being in a POW camp writing? Fuck, it was hard enough to write this uh, outline in perfectly conducive conditions, so... (laughs) I
3: know, I know. I always think of that, you know. I think of... It's probably some sort of logical fallacy or whatever, but people truly were made of stronger stuff back then. The last, I don't know, 40, 50 years of technological growth has just completely rotted our sense of, like, discipline and willpower. I... (laughs) And it's true. Yes, and you should say. We're it. Certainly,
2: certainly not like the ancient Romans inventing roads. Uh, yeah,
3: what the fuck did we invented TikTok? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Throughout all of this, Cooper's fascination with. Gorillas remained. So much so that in 1927, he began writing a monograph on baboons based on the observations he'd made while in Sudan shooting the four feathers. The monograph itself was accidentally destroyed and never rewritten, but Cooper's interest remains. So he was like fully into monkeys. He was like a monkey guy. Then he would read, uh, W. Douglas Burden's The Dragon Lizards of Komodo and he was inspired why not have a gorilla fight some Komodo dragons? (laughs) This is the genesis of King Kong. He's just like, what if? Um, So he wrote a letter to Burden um, in 1964 and said, then one day after one of my conversations with you, I thought to myself, why not film my gorilla? And I also had very firmly in my mind to giantize both the gorilla and your dragons to make them really huge. I mean, and I'm sure Ben was like, yeah, cool. Let's do that and have them fight. So Cooper would go through several versions of this initial concept before he narrowed down the focus to being on one giant gorilla, one giant Komodo dragon and a lone woman on an expedition. Uh, The introduction of a lead female character came after he received criticism for his films lacking in romance. Um, I don't know how he could introduce romance with there only being two giant creatures and a woman without (laughs) some very untoward (laughs) situations
3: going on. But he was on the same wavelength as I was about Matthew Broderick.
2: He also settled on some settings, so one being a remote island and a spectacular end in New York City, about which he said... I always believed in personalizing and in focusing attention on one character. And from the very beginning, I intended to make it the giant gorilla. No matter what else I surrounded him with, I had already established him in my mind on a prehistoric island with prehistoric monsters, and now I thought of having him destroyed by the most sophisticated thing I could think of in civilization. My very original concept was to place him at the top of the Empire State Building and have him killed by airplanes. So already pretty clear idea of what he wanted to do. In 1931, then, uh, while Shodzak was in Sumatra filming a movie called Rango, not the Johnny Depp chameleon movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh David O'Selznick, everyone's favorite fat cap, became the head of production at the sinking RKO, because when wasn't it's sinking? It was always every single year, fucking RKO was sinking. <laughs> (laughs) And Cooper and Selznick became acquainted with one another, and Cooper helped Selznick get his job at RKO in the first place, apparently. (laughs) It was here that Selznick asked Cooper to join him at RKO, where he would officially pitch the idea for King Kong. Uh, After pitching the idea, um, he was discouraged by not only Selznick, who had encouraged him to pitch his idea anyway, but by every other major producer in town, largely due to the enormous cost of shooting on location. And they were not even swayed by Cooper's attempts to purchase the rights to Tarzan from Irving Thalberg at MGM to make a double Africa picture, shooting both on location at the same time. Instead, they put Cooper to work on the development of the 1932 release, The Most Dangerous Game, and he hired Schoetsack as a director in partnership with Irving Peichel. An enormous jungle set was built for Fay Ray and Joel McRae to run around in. The absolute disgust in your voice. (laughs) (laughs) While Cooper himself was then assigned by Selznick to cut down on the overheads, of the studio and study an out of control project called creation so creation was a stop-motion animated film about a group of shipwrecked travelers on an island of dinosaurs overseen by chief technician willis o'brien and his crew who had been working on it for over a year cooper said the project should be scrapped and instead said what if you worked on my giant gorilla movie uh, and in his 1931 studio report, Cooper wrote, I have prepared and am sending my conception of this giant terror gorilla and the kind of scenes in which he should be used. However, before any large amount of money is spent on this picture, I suggest we make two scenes with the giant gorilla to see how lifelike and terrible a character it can be made. To help convince the wary RKO executives that it was finally time to get his giant gorilla picture happening, By this stage, it had its name, Kong. Cooper put together a one-reel test film. An 18-inch model of Kong was created along with several reappropriated dinosaurs from the abandoned creation set. And would have scenes of Kong throwing terrified sailors off a log and Kong fighting a dinosaur. Some sources say it was an Allosaurus. Some people say it was a T-Rex uh, in front of Anne Darrow. The scenes of the sailors falling to their deaths from a log ended with them being eaten by giant crab spiders, which Tiff does not like. Oh, yeah, too,
3: that's two of Tiff's least favorite
2: things. <laughs> Spider crabs. But they didn't test well with... Uh, the audience, which I assume was made mostly of tots um, so they... <laughs>
3: just see a very small, very disgruntled Canadian. So.
2: <laughs> um, and so for this test it was reported that three months were spent researching before the film- filming even began. They researched the geographical data as well as botanical history and paleontology to get an understanding of what would have been required to keep prehistoric animals alive on such an island while footage of large animals in motion were studied to help create a sense of real motion for the other beasts. It was during the filming for the test reel that work began on the actual script. Selznick brought in the mystery writer Edgar Wallace to write a draft script based on Cooper's treatment. He convinced Cooper to use him for his speed and his talent, while also admitting that they wanted to exploit his popularity as a writer, because of course Selznick would. Cooper was not happy about using him or having his name attached to the story because Cooper kind of wanted the credit to be his, and he didn't believe that Wallace contributed much at all, though he did recognize the value of having Wallace's name on the novelization of the script once again for the monetary benefit of Wallace's name just being on it. Though modern sources contest how much Wallace actually contributed, um, some people saying that it was more than Cooper wanted to admit. However, uh, Wallace died in 1932 from complications of pneumonia and wasn't really able to see the script move forward. Selznick himself wrote later, I had signed up and sent for Edgar Wallace and brought him to California, where unfortunately he died in consequence of getting <laughs> pneumonia. I have never believed that Wallace contributed much to King Kong, but the circumstances of his death complicated the writing credits.
1: I almost thought he was going to say the circumstances of his death were suspicious. We're <laughs> just like had him like knocked off.
3: Where was Eddie Mannix at the time? <laughs> Have you ever seen Eddie Mannix and Matthew Broderick in a room together?
2: (laughs) (laughs) After Wallace's death, uh, the script would be passed through several different writers with varying levels of input the exact nature of which is a little bit muddled. Uh, It went from Dudley Nichols, Leon Gordon, James Creelman, who quit due to creative differences with Cooper after writing two drafts, before finally landing in the hands of Ruth Rose. Now, Ruth Rose was the wife of Ernest Schoedzak, and she began her career on the stage before she turned her hand to writing. Uh, She met Shodzak on an expedition to the Galapagos Islands when she was working for the New York Zoological Society and they soon fell in love and married. Uh, She would then work for Shodzak and Cooper on their projects together. When she was given the task of writing the final Kong script, It was her first time writing a screenplay, and she was told to revise Creelman's slow-paced, prosaic, and overly descriptive script and make it much more fast-paced. She would do this by cutting out many of the longer scenes that added nothing to the narrative, uh, including Kong's return to New York. So in the movie, they knock Kong out and then suddenly they're in New York. Uh, Though this might have answered my question about what did they do when Kong had to shit? Um... um,
3: That is a really good question. Oh, for Pete's sakes. Why is that monkey wearing a diaper? I thought he was housebroken.
2: In a radio interview, Cooper told Rose to establish everything before Kong makes his appearance so that we won't have to explain anything after that. Give it the spirit of a real Cooper-Schodzak expedition. In fact, um, according to the interview, Cooper instructed Rose to put us, he and Shodzak, into the story. And it is generally acknowledged that the character of Jack was modelled on Shodzak while the character of Denim is based on Cooper, and Rose would also model the character of Anne on herself, making the script read very much like one of their earlier expeditions together. Cooper and Rose also battled against Selznick, who wanted Kong to be introduced earlier in the piece, concerned that audiences would get tired of waiting for him to appear. They argued that it was important to build up the suspense, much like they had in the ethnographic film Chang, to make Kong's first appearance as exhilarating as possible, which I think was the right way to go.
3: That's such a Selznick complaint to make.
2: <laughs> Why don't we see him right away? The movie is called King Kong.
3: It reminds me of that old story about how um, Sam Goldwyn didn't want his actors ever shot from the back because he was paying for their faces. <laughs> 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 Just like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like if Selznick way too much credit, he, he was good at hiring and he was an intelligent man,
2: but oh my god, oh my god, <laughs> you god. You know. and Now I'm all I'm thinking about Sam is like, hate to watch him leave, but love to watch him walk away <laughs> <laughs> it's about Dana Andrews <laughs> but true to the sort of chaotic uh, nature of Cooper and the way that he was getting this film sort of from point A to point B by just like making shit and then trying to prove it um, would work. Uh, Rose would continue refining the script throughout production. Uh, a fun fact about Ruth Rose is that after King Kong, she would go on to write Son of Kong, The Last Days of Pompeii, and Mighty Joe Young. <laughs> um, and her screenplay for Kong would be used in both remakes both in 76 and Peter Jackson's 2005 version. And I'm sure had she lived long enough, she might have even written Congo, (laughs) Uh, which is a great movie about what would happen if gorillas could talk and also (laughs) holster weapons. So when the test reel was finally shown after its incredibly exhausting production. It was met by enthusiasm by the executives and it was given the green light to go ahead. Cooper and Shodzak had agreed to work as co-directors on the film, much like they had in the past, but they soon realized that their directing styles for this particular picture were very, very different. Cooper was focused on detail and worked really slowly, while Shodzak worked fast. He just wanted to get it in the can. Eventually, they would agree it was better to work separately from one another, with Cooper overseeing the animated portion and the special effects, while Shodzak oversaw the live-action dialogue scenes. So, who exactly is in this movie? First, we'll start off with, I'm going to say, second biggest star in this movie, which is Wright. The first biggest is obviously Kong himself, but uh, Faye Ray had met Cooper and Shodzak when she was working in Four Feathers, obviously, and would work with them again in the Most Dangerous Game. After the test for Kong was approved, Cooper had decided he wanted to cast a blonde in the role of Anne to have her stand out against the dark hair of Kong. Uh, Dorothy Jordan, Cooper's soon-to-be wife, Jean Harlow and Ginger Rogers were all considered, but the role ultimately went to Ray, who would wear a blonde wig throughout production. In her biography, Ray stated that she had been more inspired than Cooper's enthusiasm than she had been by the script. Cooper had told her that he planned for her to star against the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood, who she assumed was Clark Gable, (laughs) um, until he showed her a drawing of Kong on the Empire State Building. And I think that she does a definitely credible job in her role. I mean, it's really hard for anyone to shine in this movie when we're all really here for one thing and that thing is Kong. But I, I I definitely think that if Gene Harlow was in this role, it would have been a little bit hard for their focus to be on Kong, but that's just my opinion. I really can't imagine Ginger Rogers in this movie, though.
3: I can imagine Ginger's, Ginger, Ginger spends the entire movie doing that thing she does with her eyes where she just narrows it. She narrows her eyes because <laughs> she, she senses some sort of hijinks going on, like, mmm, you know, I think <laughs> she does, mm, but she's just doing that at Kong. You stop that. You better put me down, mister. Yeah, phase uh, it's it's a different vibe, it's definitely a different vibe.
2: Yeah, I just think perhaps both Gene Harlow and Ginger had just a little bit too much moxie in their screen personas to be like
1: manhandled by Kong in the same way. I kind of feel like Harlow and Ginger both would enjoy watching Kong beat up a T-Rex. Like <laughs> yeah. they'd yeah. it, they'd yes. be cheering him on. Yeah,
3: probably. <laughs> yeah, Faye really is the prototypical scream queen in that sense that you that
2: don't say that's
3: not to, to denigrate that's not right no That's not to great. denigrate her but but you don't expect her to to bust her way out you know what i mean mm. which you would definitely expect of gene harlow you'd be like oh she's gonna outsmart him she's gonna outsmart this big damn stupid ape
2: and king kong <laughs> and um, king- <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know it's also interesting to me that they decided to go with a blonde because you've just had this giant disaster over at MGM with Traderhorn which was the reason really why they didn't want to shoot Kong on location was because Traderhorn had been an unmitigated nightmare and a constant headache over at MGM and it cost MGM a shitload of money and had almost killed Edwina Booth and Edwina Booth of course is a blonde and I just think it's very funny that it's like you've had this giant publicity scam it's kind of like um, being like you know what we should name, it's like, it's, it's, it's 2002 and you're like, you know what we should name our company? Earnron. Like, it's just, it's funny. It's like, it's <laughs> just, we've just, that's bad. I don't know. It feels like a bad omen personally, but I guess visually.
2: They made the same mistakes over and over again in Hollywood. Like they don't learn. They simply do not learn. The The role of our sociopathic denim for this role, Cooper and Shodzak, turned to another member of their like little circle they had a gang uh and that was robert armstrong who was a veteran of the stage and screen and by that point had also starred in the most dangerous game (laughs) and they decided that he was perfect for denim and would be used liberally to promote the film because he at the time definitely had the largest sort of public profile
3: don't get it Um, don't get it at all i
2: don't i don't get it uh and he would appear in the posters with ray swooning in his arms captioned with their hearts stood still for there stood kong a love story for today that spans the ages uh even though the romantic lead in the film is jack driscoll and not denham But they certainly could not use the man who was Jack Driscoll to promote this movie. So, as mentioned before, the role of Jack Driscoll was meant to go to Joel McRae. And there are a number of reports surrounding why this never came to be. Some saying that McRae was tired of roles in Jungle Features, which is fair enough. He'd been on a lot at this point. Um, while others say that he was ill-suited to the physical demands of the part, which is a question I had for Candace. Do you think he would have been unfit to make this movie? Because he had made the most dangerous game. That, to me,
3: is the only angle this that doesn't make any sense, because um, Joel was in great physical condition. And you also have to remember that Joel had started out as a stuntman, and Joel had done a lot of very dangerous stunts. Joel, at one point, one of my favorites, he doubled for Garbo. And I don't remember which movie this is, but Garbo is like on a horse and there's like fire or something. Well, that's Joel on the horse in a blonde wig as Garbo with the fire. <laughs> I don't know if that movie still exists because it, does, it doesn't ring a bell. But anyway, that's what So Joel started as a summon. He was a cowboy. So I could see Joel being like, no, I don't want to risk my neck. When I could be in a movie where I just, you know, walk around with a a tennis racket or something. But Joel could have definitely pulled off the physicality.
2: Yeah, that was my question. I was like, I feel like he would have been fine to make this. I reckon he just was sick of making jungle pictures.
3: Yeah, I think that was more it. um, Because back to back, Bird of Paradise and Most Dangerous Game is a lot of being shirtless in the jungle being chased <laughs> by things. Um, so I yeah. think he was a little tired of that. Um, the, the reason that I've heard um, and that to me makes the most sense from what we know of Joel is that I believe at one point Bruce Cabot said that he was told it was because Joel had asked for too much money. <laughs> so that is the reason that makes the most sense to me. Joel could have done it. He asked for too much money. Joel also was one of the, really one of the f- first actors, at, at least in this period who Maybe it's because he can't act. I don't know. He's bouncing between studios a lot. Joel was never really locked into a contract for a long period of time, apart from um, when he worked for Goldwyn. So Joel had a little bit more autonomy in demanding um, payment. And picking projects than a lot of other actors did. It's kind of a misconception that this really comes in with Gregory Peck. And that's true when it comes to then introducing the real agent system that then is going to kind of slowly lead to the the, the death of the studio system. But particularly at this point in time, you do have actors like Joel who, like it or not, have a certain leverage because Joel is six foot two and blonde and he can do whatever he wants.
2: So are we saying like, if it's that domino meme, Joel McRae, free agent, leads to the collapse of the studio system?
3: <laughs> I would say, I mean, I'm not, I'm, Joel leads to the collapse of anything. I could say you could probably certainly led to the collapse of my will to live. So that <laughs> would make sense. Now, I think, I don't know. I have a lot of theories about this, but, um, just because that is just a little thing that grinds my gears is that, that there's a common misconception that it's really about Gregory Peck. And during the 1930s, you do have a lot of actors who really are agitating for a certain degree of control over their careers. You have Paul Muni, for example. It's not, it's, people give Gregory Peck too much goddamn credit. And that's the topic for another episode.
2: I mean, I think also there was probably a more pressing need for actors in the 30s to have a little bit more um, power because of just the total financial devastation of absolutely every institution in the country. So, yeah, it makes sense. But anyway, enough about Joel McCroe. The part instead went to one of Selznick's contract players, that being Bruce Cabot. Cabot had met with Cooper while auditioning for The Most Dangerous Game. He'd almost walked out of his audition for Kong because he believed he was trying out for a out as a stunt double for Joel McRae, uh, but was convinced to stay and ultimately given the role. Later, Cabot would describe his participation in Kong as standing in the right place, doing what he was told and collecting a paycheck, which, uh, I mean, getting the job done. <laughs> he was under no illusions, I think, which is refreshing. The rest of the cast was rounded out by uh, Frank Reicher as Engelhorn. Sam Hardy as Charles Weston, Noble Johnson, Steve Clement, Victor Wong, and James Flavin. The rest of the cast was bolstered out by bit players and stunt people, uh, and the two directors also had cameos with Cooper as an airplane pilot and showed Shaq as a machine gunner in the planes at the end. The last and yet certainly not least, uh, most important character of this film is obviously that of Kong himself. So there were four models of King Kong created initially. Two were scaled 18-inch models composed of an articulated steel skeleton with latex muscles, stuffed with cotton and covered in liquid latex to make the basic gorilla shape, and then covered in bare fur. Flammable! <laughs> These models would be rotated throughout filming. Another 24-inch model was made in the same way for the Empire State scenes while a smaller model was made of lead and fur for Kong's fall. Along with all of these tiny Kongs, a giant Kong head, neck, upper chest, arm, hand, and foot were also created. The Kong head was constructed of wood, cloth, rubber, and bearskin. And inside it, um, it was operated by metal levers, hinges, and an air compressor. All of these models were constructed by Marcel Degardo, per the designs and directions set down by Cooper and his technical director, O'Brien. The designs took a few liberties with the anatomy of a gorilla to make (laughs) them more streamlined and less comical. Uh, Essentially... They cut down the belly and the butt of the gorilla. I was form. gonna say he doesn't have the
3: donk that he should. I've also got. I've also heard. I've also heard that um, when they were shaping the models, they really had to be careful because they've been threatened with a libel suit um, from Jimmy Cagney. <laughs> <Shut laughs> well, They old fat ass.
2: They streamlined the form of the gorilla because they thought having a big ass <laughs> or an ass that don't quit. <laughs> Uh, was just going to be a bit too funny uh, for audiences, so they...
3: um... (laughs) (laughs) They were right, except laughing just thinking about it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So they really sort of streamlined that whole area. Now, not to be held down by continuity, Kong's scale is also um, a thing of great uh, fluidity, we'll say. It varies greatly across uh, each of the models, and also just between different scenes in the movies. Uh, With some scenes, he appears to be about 18 feet tall, but on the Empire State Building scenes, he is scaled at about 25 or 24 feet tall. Uh, And in most reviews and promotional material, he's billed at being 50 foot tall. There are also some scenes that he appears large in comparison to the models of people or other dinosaurs. So it's not really clear how tall Kong really is, but that just makes him like any other leading man of the time. In describing how some of these other Kong parts were used, like his arms and big feet and whatever, uh, Fei Ray in her autobiography described the big arm was about six feet long and was attached to a lever so it could be raised or lowered. I would stand on the floor while a grip would place the flexible fingers around my waist in a grip secure enough to allow me to be raised to a level in line with an elevated camera. There was also a wind machine that gave motion to my clothes and I struggled to give the illusion that Kong was a fearsome 40 feet tall. Ray recalls that although Walter Plunkett is generally credited as the film's costumer, her costumes were designed by a young woman from New York. So in terms of where the Kong models are today, because I don't know if we can call them puppets. They were articulated, but I don't know. Candace is the puppet expert. I don't know what makes a puppet a puppet. Um,
3: <laughs> a joie de vivre. <laughs> It's all about attitude.
2: Of all of the different models that were made, uh, only two of them still exist today. And the dinosaurs were fashioned in a similar way. Now, all of these models were, used, were made using liberal amounts of latex, which suffered greatly under the studio lights, uh, with Kong's rubber skin having to be replaced frequently due to it drying out. So wooden duplicates were carved to be used as stand-ins while they were preparing to shoot. Uh, models of the actors, the Venture, which is the boat, and other vehicles were also made to round out the miniature cast. So we had our normal cast and our miniature cast. Cool. So with the casting... Both human and puppet squared away, um, and the green light given to begin actual production shooting began in 1932 in June. The live action sequences were shot in three or four week stretches over the course of eight months, and it soon became clear that continuous shooting would be required to maintain a consistent look and feel for the animation. This led to some very long days of shooting with Fay Ray claiming in her autobiography that she was stuck in a palm tree for 22 hours watching Kong and the T-Rex fight. The sacrifice scene was shot in one night and required a cast of thousands to come to fruition. The jungle sets were the same as those used in The Most Dangerous Game, and both films were filmed at the same time, with Dangerous Game being filmed during the day and Kong being filmed at night. Uh, There were also some external shots done primarily on the RKO Pathé 40-acre ranch in Culver City. Cecil B. DeMille's set for King of Kings was co-opted for the village scenes, uh, and the village was ultimately destroyed in the burning of Atlanta in Gone with the Wind years later. It's
3: amazing to think of sets standing that long. Like I, I know logically King of Kings, that's what 1927 and 33 isn't that long of a gap. But just to think about, I don't know. Now they're so eager to strike everything immediately. You know, nothing gets left up anymore. Meanwhile, like the um, the set for Intolerance was just crumbling on Hollywood Boulevard. For like a decade, just hanging out in the middle of, you know, (laughs) in the middle of a (laughs) residential neighborhood at the time. So, I don't know. It's just funny.
2: They were just a bit more spendthrift. (laughs) Now, due to the technical nature and the involved shooting style that the film required, there was a lot of budgetary pressure on the filmmakers. Uh, Cooper and Show had to justify the increases to production costs over and over again to the RKO executives and Selznick himself. Uh, Selznick claimed that he squeezed as much money as he could from other features to give to Kong, and in a 1932 film daily report it was said that RKO's A pictures would cost $225,000 but according to a 1947 memo the actual cost was closer to $672,000. Cooper argues that RKO padded this number up by $200,000 but considering all of the special effects and the length of shooting that needed to happen I think it's probably more accurate to say that it was closer to $600,000.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know what he would think they'd pad it with. Like, the flowers from Catherine Hepburn's dressing room are getting added to Kong's budget. You know, like, (laughs) obviously, what else is going on at RKO at the time? Not much in terms of um, real expenditures.
2: RKO doesn't really strike me as a company that spends extra money anywhere on the other side of the spectrum though Faye ray says she was paid just ten thousand dollars for appearing in kong which would piss me off
3: well i mean i was curious right because i kept talking about trader horn edwina booth only got thirty five thousand dollars and the court settlement from mgm for almost killing her during production
2: honestly that's like more than i'd expect from mgm
3: I mean, I think it was because it was... Um,
2: Court mandated?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the one judge that they hadn't paid off, I guess. But Fay Ray only makes 10 grand for a movie. Edwina Booth only makes three times that for almost dying of, like, malaria. Meanwhile, Joel's like, I will not show up <laughs> for less. <laughs>
2: i wonder how much he asked for
3: i don't know joel was definitely a person who lived by the idea of you know what's that thing that the white girls always get tattooed on them that's like shoot for the moon because even if you fail (laughs) you'll end among the stars (laughs) that was like joel's life motto so probably a lot of money
2: well now that we all know that king kong was a very special effect heavy movie i can go a little bit into just how many effects that were included there was a mix, a mixed bag of stop motion animation, matte painting, rear projection, and our miniatures. The most involved of all of these effects was the stop motion animations, uh, with some scenes taking weeks to shoot. The scene of Kong fighting the T-Rex allegedly took seven weeks to complete, uh, which makes a lot of sense. It goes on a long time in the, in the film. And for what it's worth, I think, that the movement of Kong is very natural. I did see somewhere that Show and Cooper used to be wrestlers and did all of the original footage that they based the action on for the animation, but I couldn't find anything to verify that fact. Um, But kind of similar to how Disney did all of their test footage that they would rotoscope animation on, um, I'm sure they did the same kind of thing for Kong because the physicality
1: of it is very natural. Yeah, Kong fights like a human man. He's landing so many punches.
3: It's amazing how how good it looks, particularly because we watched a seven twenty eight, you know, or ten eighty P like rip illegally on a Russian website. (laughs) Um I don't own this movie on Blu-ray. I should. But um normally oftentimes especially because the scene where Kong is fight he's fighting one of the dinosaurs. I don't know. And then you have this like Rocky horror picture show type deal where then you have like the rest of the cast walking in front of <laughs> the fight scene, commenting on it as they're making their way. And so of course the perspective's all off, but it's obviously it's a projection, Yeah, you know, it's, it's a projection and they're walking in front of, in front of the, the screen. But normally when you see something like that in that kind of high definition detail, you get to see that. And it's so Interesting to me how, apart from the fact that it's obviously a projection, how really flawless the special effects are in this, you know? I, I don't know. There's none of that. There's such a smoothness. Maybe it's just because, I don't know, because they, they spent, like you said, seven weeks on one scene. But when it comes to the, a- the animation of it, they're not wasting frames. You know what I mean? There is, there is enough footage to encapsulate, like, the full range of motion, so that it really does look like you're watching an animal.
2: Mm. I think what makes it so successful is that it is – they did spend so much time getting the detail right. and I mean, you can see like shot to shot the fur moving on Kong as if someone's touched it, um, which is not something you get away with now in stop-motion animation. But I think that it adds to it. It's like you don't have any preconceived notions that, oh, it's a real gorilla – but it's still yeah. impressive and it's still exciting. And, you know, it's better going into it if you're not so jaded and being like, oh, the effects are lame, you know, it's not CGI. And it's like, well, I mean, it definitely would have been harder to make than fucking Peter Jackson's King Kong. So
3: it's so, um, it's so tactile. It's so like, it's a, a glimpse into the amazing things that can be achieved by the human hand mm. you know like that to me is like the, the so much of the, the the wondrous like gift of filmmaking is being able to have insight into this this craft and this lost art in a, in a lot of different ways of being able to to make something from nothing being able to, to literally to, to craft something to carve something to you know to put something together when that's obviously a skill that we for the most part no longer possess like, can I do woodworking? No. <laughs> can I make a fucking Kong? No.
2: Well, don't count yourself out now. <laughs> if you want to build <laughs> you know, your cob know, house, no. then uh...
3: if want to build my cob house? That's true. I think mean, that's that's part of the appeal for me. But yeah, I I don't I don't mind it at all because to me it's it's the human element. I, I, I it's something that doesn't translate for a lot of people. Like people will see something like uh, you know the Ray Harryhausen movies and they'll be like, well, you can see the string. It's like it doesn't matter that you can see the string. It's not about the string. It's not about the string. <laughs> about the string. Like. Go Oh, fucking watch an anime or something! I'm so, and even anime—the the, the beauty of something being being drawn by the human hand. So that they don't even they don't even appreciate that. I don't know what I don't know what people are looking for. Honestly, I don't know what people want from movies.
2: They want their gorillas with huge asses. Is what they want.
3: <laughs> I was gonna say furries that's what
2: they want (laughs) um so on top of the stop motion animation taking an awful long time to film the crew also had to contend with integrating the live action scenes with the stop motion scenes Uh, a few different techniques were used to make this a reality the first being the dunning process which was invented by carol h dunning which uses different channels of light to combine two different strips of different film at the same time creating the final composite shot in camera. The most notable uh, use of this was when the planes attacked Kong on the top of the Empire State Building. Another process uh, was the Williams process invented by cinematographer Frank D. Williams. Uh, It did not need the system of different coloured lights and could be used more readily for wider shots. This process used an optical printer, which was a device that synchronised a projector with the camera so that several strips of film could be composited into one image. And then as... Candice mentioned another process was rear screen projection to combine live actors with stop motion. This is almost a proto-green screen effect where the actor stands in front of a translucent screen that footage would be projected onto. It was used in the scene where Anne is watching Kong fight the T-Rex. And it was also used on the miniature set with a tiny screen being built to project the live action footage onto As for the sound effects used in the film, Kong's roar was made up of a mix of lion and tiger growls being played backwards.
0: Don't be alarmed, ladies and gentlemen. Those chains are made of chrome steel.
2: I don't know why they couldn't just get gorilla sounds. (laughs) But these were developed by Murray Spivak, who also provided the sound of Kong's love notes by grunting into a <laughs> megaphone and playing it back slowly. For the Foley effects of Kong's thunderous footsteps, Spivak would stump across a gravel-filled box with plungers wrapped in foam attached to his feet, while the sound of Kong beating his own chest was Spivak hitting his assistant on the chest with a drumstick, hoping <laughs> to catch the sound with a microphone strapped to his back. I always love reading about Foley stuff. I, th- I definitely think it's an underrepresented uh, aspect of film culture, but it's because so much film now I reckon they just have a bank of sound effects they turn to. I I love Foley. I think it's awesome. The calls of the dinosaurs were various bird and puma sounds, an air compressor, and even Spivak himself. Spivak also provided the screams for many of the sailors who get sort of fucking torn to pieces by uh, the plesiosaur. Which is a great scene, by the way, where it sort of comes out of the water and is just fucking pulling these dummies oh, yeah. out, of the, out of the water and like th- tossing them around.
3: The, uh, the dinosaurs in this are so good. They and, are very good. Um, I like the fact the T-Rex, they didn't try to give the T-Rex something resembling human proportions, you know? They did not.
2: It may as well be the dinosaur from Toy Story. Yeah. Or... No,
3: they really gave very, very small little arms. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that they, they, they had a vision and they went up with it and they were not allowed to be bullied as opposed to whatever big, sexy T-Rex that I'm sure big Selznick six. wanted. <laughs> Selznick was probably like, give him normal arms. <laughs> and Cooper was give like- Give him boobs. Give him bo- <laughs> <sighs> Anyway, they're 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 really impressive. I think they're very cool. I really like the the, the lizards. I mean, a giant lizard dragon, whatever Cooper called them, Komodo you know, dragon. The, yeah, these standins. Yeah. yeah, I think they're I, they're so. I don't know. We we're talking about this while we we're watching because Tiff's like it's like these people have never heard of a dinosaur before. <laughs> there seems to be a lot of like explaining what a dinosaur is there's a a lot of um, exposition in the
2: dialogue uh, a lot of the dialogue is completely superfluous
0: what do you call this thing? Why, something from the dinosaur family dinosaur eh? yes Jack a prehistoric beast
2: Half of the dialogue where they're in the jungle trying to find Anne is completely pointless. It's like, this shouldn't even be in the film. But, um, I mean, I guess it is reflective of how men talk, so.
3: <laughs> Just like, oh, whoa, oh, ah, it's hot.
2: Whoa. Whoa. A dinosaur. Dinosaur. You all know what that is, right? <laughs> they're from creatures who lived many millions of years ago. Like, that kind of shit.
3: The dinosaurs are very cool. Windsor McKay found dead in a ditch, etc. cetera. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Still on sound effects, Faye Ray recorded all her screams in a single recording session and, and in her autobiography again, Ray recalls that at the film's Hollywood premiere, she felt uncomfortable watching the film mostly because my screaming was too much. Um, before they had even started editing the film, I had gone into a sound room at RKO and screamed and moaned and whimpered for several minutes recording uh, a kind of aria of agonies, so that the sounds could be spliced into the various shots as needed. Ray's recorded screens were also used in other RKO pictures, because why let go of a good thing? And they were included in Kong's sequel, Son of Kong, and in the 1945 picture, Game of Death, and a remake of The Most Dangerous Game. So, after all of that, uh, RKO were definitely not going to let this film fail. The advertising budget was very large. RKO bought 30 minutes of airtime from the National Broadcasting Company and on the 10th of February 1933 broadcast a 30-minute radio teaser for the film, which featured a specially written script and sound effects. Uh, Mystery Magazine ran a serialised version of the story, which they advertised as the last and the greatest creation of Edgar Wallace. And again, they ran with all of the romance angle posters and then the 50-foot King Kong byline. So after a lengthy and difficult, expensive shooting period, Kong was finally released on Thursday, March the 2nd in 1933 at the Radio City Music Hall and the RKO Roxy, um, which is one of the few films to actually open at both venues. Before the film, there was a stage show called Jungle Rhythms just to get people in the mood. I bet that wasn't
1: racist at all.
2: No, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was very... Very tasteful. (laughs) uh, Tasteful and respectful. Uh, and for the first four days every single session was sold out uh, with crowds lining up around the block to see the spectacle. I bet they weren't paying 20 bucks though. Studio memos indicate that because of the unplanned bank holidays that occurred shortly after the inauguration of FDR and the general financial woes of the Depression meant that the Los Angeles premiere was delayed by over a week, uh, the film would be opened at Grumman's Chinese Theatre on the 23rd of March. To celebrate the opening, a large bust of Kong's head was placed at the entrance and a 17-act show preceding the film (laughs) went on.
3: Nurse, waiter. There's a 17 act show in my suit. I don't want
2: this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, According to the studio, according to studio correspondence, RKO contract stars uh, Robert Wozley and Bert Wheeler were said to be the master's of ceremony at the premiere. However, an L.A. Times news item announced Joel McRae as the evening's MC. You
3: imagine? (laughs) Talk about watching paint dry. (laughs) Joel is an MC.
2: Maybe I mean it. If they paid him, he would he would come.
3: That's true. They offered, they offered to pay him the stuff.
2: So in a letter to Cooper afterwards, Sid Grumman, the owner of the Chinese Theatre and the producer, in inverted commas, of the premiere would say of the picture, never saw greater enthusiasm at any premiere in my past experience of presenting premieres as that of King Kong. Every person leaving the theatre tonight will be a human 24 sheet. I believe it to be the greatest picture I have ever seen. The film was, pageantry aside, uh, an enormous box office success for RKO, which had been put into permanent receivership by the Irving Trust Company. Um, So the gross for the opening weekend in New York totaled $90,000 in 1933 money, which would be a fucking lot of money, enough to keep them open until they got to, like, the gay divorcee or whatever. (laughs) It would be, oh, well, because of its initial success, uh, it would be re-released multiple times in the next few decades before making it onto TV. Uh, it didn't make it through unscathed, though, as the production code came into effect and the puritanical haze got his way, with many of the scenes being progressively censored from the original cut. Uh, some of the most notorious scenes, including the crewman getting mauled by the mold by the brontosaurus, uh, Kong undressing Anne, which is very uncomfortable because he like peels off her clothes and then sniffs his fingers. <laughs> Gross.
3: The crewmen getting bald. Mauled. Bald. No, they got bald by the brontosaurus. And <laughs> that didn't fly with at all. He said, like, gotta scratch that.
2: Um Kong stepping on the villagers and Kong dropping a woman he mistakes for Anne to her death from the hotel were among some of the scenes that were excised. Even before its initial re- release, it received some internal censorship. The scene where the crew uh, members are killed by an array of beasts it was considered too gruesome even by, cre- P- P code.
3: <laughs> even by pre-code standards. It is the P code. It's the PP code for PP babies, PP piss babies, who are afraid of real life.
2: Even by pre-code standards to show so it was cut by the studio and this footage is just, it's gone, baby. Bye-bye. An interesting fact, in 1965, Variety reported that King Kong had been banned from Australian television because it was declared unfit for viewing. So, isn't that interesting? I don't know why. I don't know why Strange we were too country. sensitive to see King Kong. Because in 1965, they would have still had the version that had been cut down. I don't know why we were such piss babies, but anyway... Uh, So for a long time, the original cut of the film was considered lost because RKO being RKO did not preserve the original negative um, or the, or ever released the prints of the film with the scenes restored. Uh, It wasn't until 1969 where a 16mm version of the film was found in Philadelphia, that the film was finally restored to its 100-minute runtime, and it has subsequently been restored multiple times in multiple formats in an attempt to get it back to its former glory. Which is, it's fucking annoying. Every time you hear that, it's just like, why didn't they save anything?
3: (laughs) Because there was no commercial value in it. There was more commercial value in a a set piece than there was in a negative because the set piece can be reused. But
2: the thing is, though, they kept re-releasing Kong. So they saw that it had financial value in that it was important to re-release it like almost every five years in cinemas.
3: I think there was almost this sense of fatalism and this kind of a historical, but I think understandable at the time, conception that the code would never go away. And so that there was no point in keeping prints of movies that were no, that weren't saleable under the code. I I think it's why we see a lot of stuff get scratched at that point in time, especially with a lot of the silent movies, because when you're looking at it and you're like, well, this isn't going to fly today. So why bother hanging on to it? Not thinking that there would be a future where that might be valuable. It's not an industry with with a with a long term vision. It's always been a very short sighted kind of yeah.
2: Everyone's just treating their films like fucking Buster, just making them and then being like, well, oh, fuck, yeah, I don't know, if I get it's out of my enough. control. Let's <laughs> <laughs> use this to prop open the door. Upon its release, its initial release, that is, uh, the film experienced high acclaim from audiences and critics alike. Uh, reviews at the time did reveal that the initial response may have been a little bit mixed with a, revi- a variety review. Um, for instance, stating there are times when the plot takes advantage of its imaginative status and goes too far. On these occasions, the customers are liable to laugh in the wrong way. A more tolerant audience at music hall broke down now and then, but on the whole, it was exceedingly kind. It seemed that while a few details were too strong to swallow the picture as a whole, they got them
3: the hardest thing to swallow was Bruce Cabot <laughs>
2: The review goes on to describe the box office potential of King Kong. While not believing it, audiences will wonder how it's done. If they wonder, they'll talk. And that talk, plus the curiosity the advertising should incite, ought to draw business all over. Kong mystifies as well as it horrifies and may open up a new medium for scaring babies via the screen. The New York Times review observed, needless to say, that this picture was received by many a giggle to cover up fright constant exclamations issued by from the Radio City Music Hall yesterday, Uh, and the Chicago Tribune called it one of the most original thrilling and mammoth novelties to emerge from a movie studio. But regardless of whatever the contemporary reviews say, King Kong certainly struck enough of a chord to have made such an indelible mark on world history and culture as it has today, and that's probably testament enough to how well it was received. Because I don't think it would have been so ubiquitous in film culture if it hadn't been well received by audiences. But then again, who knows?
3: Yeah, I mean, cause sometimes the um, sometimes something becomes of this era in particular, becomes fixed in the popular imagination because it's like this elusive failed art project. Like Kong really could have gone e- either way, I think. I think it, it could have been a, a popular spectacle, or people could have been maybe not totally receptive of it because, as we've established, the audience is always wrong. Yeah. So,
2: but I think also if you're a moviegoer in 1933 and you're seeing the scale and the the effects, I mean, I'm sure you would have been discerning enough to know, yep, that's fake.
3: <laughs> but like, <I> don't know.
2: <laughs> but like, you ever met a person before? <laughs> Even the novelty of that, seeing that kind of filmmaking at that time, would have been enough to have left an impression. Yeah, um,
3: I still think of. I think it was like I can't remember which of the fan magazines it was, but I once read like a letter. Somebody saw Dracula and was like, "This is the most boring movie I've ever seen." So some people, you know what I mean? I, 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 I don't know. I
2: don't know. People the point are wrong. Sometimes people are wrong. Sometimes. Well, most of the time, actually. Yeah, I think it's testament enough that the fact that you can see an image of. Kong on the Empire State Building, and understand immediately what that's about. So, in the years since its release, Kong has had some less fav- that less than favorable um, analysis, with many scholars arguing that the film is a cautionary allegory condemning interracial romance and. There is certainly a basis for such criticism with people of African descent being visually represented as ape-like. A stereotype that was reinforced by the, I guess, the fad at the time of scientific racism, which had been used to essentially uh, justify a whole swath of destructive racist policy by using bunk science to assert that whites were physically and mentally superior beings, which (laughs) is, I mean they'll try anything huh and while cooper and shochak reject this allegation that there was sort of this hidden meaning and that there was this allegory in the film in an interview which was published after his death cooper actually explained that his deeper meaning of the film was inspired by um leaving his office in manhattan and hearing the sound of an airplane motor causing him to look up and see that the sun glinted off its wings and that it was flying very close to the tallest building in the city, uh, he then realized that if he placed a giant gorilla on top of the tallest building in the world and then had him shot down by the most modern of weapons, the armed airplane, he would have a story of the primitive doomed by modern civilization. Now, while this is his argument, I don't think it can be denied that the film definitely benefited from a racist kind of thinking. Um, I don't know necessarily if the idea that there's an, an allegory for interracial romance is particularly true when the racism is less subliminal and more directly overt. So, I mean, this is... When we were watching it yesterday, I mean, it's pretty clear when you're watching it that there's a certain type of lens that has been placed on the depiction of the different kinds of people in this movie. So the white people are always the heroes and they're pure and strong and courageous and brave, whereas the depictions uh, of the indigenous people have always made me deeply uncomfortable because of how overtly racist they are, and how the idea of this kind of colonial white explorer, which I think that was definitely an idea that both Cooper and Shodchak prided themselves on being they were these explorers that made these ethnographic films in these far-off countries and treated the indigenous people as some kind of spectacle definitely would have rubbed off in how they produced this film so i don't know how much of an argument you can make for these hidden allegories of racism when the racism is fucking right up top uh, but that's that's me and another thing to remember is that the film itself like the production benefited from racist thinking because a few years before king kong was made the mockumentary exploitation film in gagi was made on the pretense that it was an ethnographic film uh, the entire plot was obviously fabricated and depicted a ritual where African women are given over to gorillas as sex slaves. Congo Pictures advertised the film as an authentic incontestable celluloid document showing the sacrifice of a living woman to mammoth gorillas. And it was a financial success, which is very damning on the public. And it's long been held that its financial success was one of the motivating factors behind RKO investing in King Kong, which is, you know, of course. Uh, so I think that any kind of criticism that calls into question how race <laughs> Uh, and particularly that colonial kind of white explorer myth is perpetuated is very much valid because, I mean, it's just emblematic of how those white explorers really saw themselves in these situations when really they were um, just perpetuating the predominantly racist thinking and stereotypes that were pervasive at the time.
3: And even if you consider Cooper's framing of the narrative there's still obviously something very paternalistic about that um yeah. about framing it as, as as primitive versus modern because that whole disappear you know the 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 emphasis upon vanishing and disappearance um is a very easy way to dehumanize populations that are being systematically I, I, destroyed destroyed I mean I'm trying to look for a for, a, for a, a, a bit of a neutral verb there but yeah I mean it's it's an it's an easy way to to, to write it off as being just kind of a, a concept of, of progress even if you are sympathetic to those groups because then it, it it takes a lot of nuance out of the conversation you know
2: yeah I don't think Cooper had a lot of nuance no uh, I I also think that he was just so deeply entrenched in that that world of you know, Being the white man talking about the other and bringing that back to for other white people to enjoy, I feel like that was so much a part of his life and his story that there's it just translated directly into his filmmaking. And I think that it's important for us to acknowledge that. Um, Which is why, I mean, this is something that we rail on all the time. But why I think it's important to critically engage with media of the past even if it's uncomfortable as opposed to just wiping it from historical record because from understanding understanding really comes from context and you know understanding how these things fit within the context how they're shaped by context and how things may or may not have changed since those particular entries into film history were made so That's why I don't really put a lot of stock in people who say, oh, I don't want to watch this film. It's problematic because it's from the past. Well, it's like no doubt there were definitely horrible racist and sexist ideals being perpetuated, you know, throughout cinema history. But, I mean, it's also naive to say that those ideas aren't perpetuated today Uh, and you know, still are very harmful and damaging. And to just say, oh, well, I'm not going to engage with this media of the past, it's like, well, I mean, one, that doesn't help you contextualize how we got to where we got to today, but also it means that you're not capable of having critical understanding of media.
3: <laughs> and I think it's also, we said this a million times, but you also have to avoid slipping into some sort of complacency thinking of yourself and your historical moment as being... Um, uniquely tolerant or yeah. uniquely uniquely perfect, and and everything continues to be perfectible as we go forward. But history, also as we know, is not a. It's not linear. You know, it's not. There's there's a lot of switchback roads. There's a lot of twists and turns. And I don't know. I feel like that just that blanket dismissal of anything that precedes when you were born really messes with your sense of. As you get older and as you engage more with the world, that unfortunately sometimes those victories that we do achieve can then be they can be pulled back. You know, I don't want people to think that that they need to that everything's fine and that um, yeah,
2: Green Book won the best picture got, only a few years picture. ago. So.
3: Yeah. And I mean, also, you know, there's always the idea that, you know, if you talk to somebody, uh, you know, your your average clueless white cinema goer in the 1930s, they're not going to to consciously be able to articulate the narrative that they're seeing on screen. And also, I could argue that then people who are watching uh, a movie from 2021, 100 years from now, assuming that we haven't been conquered by aliens. Are going to be like they're going to they're going to see nuance in some shitty Ryan Reynolds movie that we wouldn't have imagined at the time. You know what I mean? Look at how many movies we look back on and we see you know all. Look at this art, this very sudden articulation of people being able to look back into the past, and I don't mean sudden in terms of like individual people, but I mean in terms of a broader cultural awareness. Being able to look back and pass and seeing really being able to articulate, for example, uh, transphobia in media of the 20th century—that's not something people would have been aware of really at the time. They couldn't even articulate to them the any of the any of these concepts. It just becomes very dangerous. Also, I think as a I I think that's also really the appeal of horror as a genre because horror is always about what makes you uncomfortable, what frightens you, and it I think you can't really be somebody who enjoys horror films without being able to analyze what is it that is underlying this fear. And sometimes these things are more direct allegories, you know what I mean? Sometimes you have something like, you know, the Godzilla movies, where obviously you can see the parallels with nuclear devastation. You can can see these things, but even in movies that on the surface you don't, Seem to you can't really connect with the underlying um, prejudices. Um, I think that there's there's something there, and that's what Kong is about: fear of the unknown. Kong is about fear of you know that 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 blank spot on the map. That's what Kong is about. And I think also I think it's a very it's an eternal theme because even though here it's about colonialism and here it's about racism, that's something that we're continuing to explore and i just we get too complacent i guess yeah
2: i i mean if you don't learn from the mistakes of the past you're doomed to repeat them uh is the the quote i mean it's more real of a quote than the one that begins kong which was just made up (laughs) by cooper himself yeah Um, the old old, though it's credited as an old arabian proverb (laughs) um i i definitely think that uh, it's important to engage with the past and i think you can enjoy media and be critical of it at the same time i don't think that these two uh things
1: exist in isolation
3: you don't have to check your brain at the door
1: we've discussed it a lot privately not so much on the show but I think in terms of, like, the social media climate, there's a lot of backlash to engaging with the past and with history. And you see it in, like, sort of the rejection of the Western canon, people saying we shouldn't teach, you know, old white man books in schools and stuff. And that it, I kind of understand where the impulse comes from, obviously. But it's like the answer isn't to eliminate these things that are less comfortable for us. It's to kind of broaden your, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, base of knowledge we shouldn't be getting rid of stuff we should be adding stuff i think so yeah i don't know it's it's the total rejection and unwillingness to engage with the past because it has these bad angles to it you know that that also eliminates you know the the struggles of people who made things better over centuries so uh, it it doesn't sit well with me and modernity
3: is relative we're someone else's past you know yeah Again, assuming the aliens don't come and annihilate us all. And, and I think we would want to have the same compassion. We want people of, of future generations to have the same compassion for us and our foibles and our flaws and our limited worldview because things are just going to get more complicated moving forward. And some of the views that we hold are going to be seen as kind of quaint and sad, you know?
2: <laughs> and I think, too, completely writing off all, like so much of this history means that you're completely writing off all of the work of people who were in these marginalized groups who made these movies, you know, because so much of film has been created by a whole gamut of people who were less accepted by society at the time, you know, when they were making them, you know, with film being such a
1: creative medium. Even like you said, the uh, uh, Faye saying that her costumes were designed by just a woman, in New York, and we don't know her name, you know. Like, yeah,
2: yeah, I'd like it. It does them such a disservice, you know. Like, Creature from the Black Lagoon being created by a woman and designed by a woman, and you know, her never getting the proper credit for that. Which I mean, we'll talk about Creature from the Black Lagoon in a, another episode because it's a good movie too. But you know, I think <sighs> erasing these films erases so much talent and artistry and skill from the historical record too, which, you know, is already so often overlooked uh, as it is. And I just think, you know, there's so much more that we can learn from that without writing it off completely. And for people to say they don't want to watch old film and then go on to watch a Marvel movie, which is essentially just military propaganda. Yeah, 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 yeah that's my
3: favorite.
2: Uh, it's a lot to swallow. <laughs> But I digress. I mean, it wouldn't be us if I didn't at least rag on Marvel once. No, but because anyway. you're
3: right. It's... I, I don't know. All popular media is 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 flawed. And not to Absolutely. make this whole, like, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. <laughs> but, like, again, none of this... We're not talking about Pushkin here. You know what I mean? This is all... It's just movies, you know?
2: It's... Well, it's movies, but also you can enjoy things and also be critical of them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like it's healthy to have that kind of relationship with the media you can consume unless the media is you've got mail which is a <laughs> perfect movie above and beyond any form of criticism so i will not hear it
3: i um, i think honestly i think gen z has and again i speak as i speak as a, as a, as a young millennial I'm on,
2: I'm on that. I'm
3: on that. I like how Candace
2: always puts this like a barrier between her and us. It's only like three years between us in age, (laughs) but she's like, I'm the hip young millennial. (laughs) I am a
3: hip young millennial. Um, I I just think that almost like the, the, I'm going to coin to coin a word here. The algorithmification of media has driven people to this point where it's like, because it's so easy now to narrowly drill down to like a hyper specific interest
1: and mm-hmm. people
3: devote so much of their time. And I'm talking particularly about young people because I'm not talking about, like, a 40-year-old CPA, you know, who's got, like, a job and, like, a life. But um, young people have this ability to, like, there's an emphasis on, like, standing and having, like, a singular devotion to things. And it's, like, it's actually okay to engage with things that maybe you're ambivalent about or unhappy with. And it doesn't always have to be, you know – slay hunty, yes, the boots down the house mama or whatever these, you know, white kids start saying on Twitter. It's like, it's not all about your K-pop fan camps. Sometimes it can be stuff that you don't necessarily agree with and things that you, but you can still approach critically. I don't know. I feel like there's this very much like WALL-E style of like, feed it to me, give it to me. I want it to be pure. And it's like, no, sometimes you have to look for stuff. Sometimes you have to look for What you're seeking and it can't all just be delivered to you. And I think that's the danger of kind of that, that, that Marvel movie that that very neat package that very neat bow. That's again, military propaganda, but as long as we wrap it in the right kind of social justice code words, we can fly under the radar. You know, Mm. because fuck
2: that. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to lead 20 men to their deaths because you want to make a cool movie about a big monster (laughs) um, is really the takeaway from this. But anyway, what is the legacy of King Kong? Uh, Even before Kong was released, they'd already started working on the sequel because the RKO executives could see the potential of, well, I mean, see the potential. They could see dollar signs. And so Son of Kong was commissioned and was released in the same year, in December of 1933. It was directed by Shodzak, and again Robert Armstrong came back as denim, but Fayray and Bruce Cabot did not come back. And Helen Mack and Frank Riker
3: Fucking hell came in. as
2: just the just the stand-ins for Anne and Jack.
3: Helen Mack is like Helen Mack, she's like James Dunn to me. I'm like, this is this is this is a movie star. This is like, I put it, <laughs> Tiff put in the pit from Goodfellas, where he's like, I ordered spaghetti and they got egg noodles with ketchup.
1: Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce and I got egg noodles and ketchup.
3: Put that in right there. That's how I feel about Helen Mack. Helen Mack is egg noodles with ketchup.
2: Yeah, as I said earlier, Ruth Rose came back as the screenwriter and she said she intentionally intentionally made no attempt to make a serious film on the logic that it could never surpass the first movie. Uh, and she said, if you can't make it bigger, make it funnier. Wish
3: they'd taken that angle with Mummy 3.
2: <laughs> Kong's next film appearance would be when RKO licensed the character to appear in Toho's King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes, directed by Ishiro Honda in the early 1960s. Then, in 1976, there was a remake and subsequent sequel made titled King Kong Lives, and then a director video animated version titled The Mighty Kong was made in 1998. Uh, An attempt was made by Stephen Summers to reboot King Kong into his own cinematic universe in the 1998 horror film Deep Rising, with the film surviving cast ending up on an island where a Kong-like roar is heard, but with the negative response and poor off box office performance, uh, this was never realised. Which Tiff and I did watch this quite recently, and
1: it's blatant. It's insane. The
2: uh, it fucking I don't know what he thought was going to happen because the plot of Deep Rising has absolutely nothing to do
1: with King Kong. No. It's like the most like left field bizarre deranged ending to any movie i've ever seen but he tried it and you've got to admire him (laughs) He, he swung for the fences he shot for the stars uh and in 2005
2: peter jackson would create a a version which i'm sure everyone is aware of it's fine it's not good um, they make Jack Driscoll a screenwriter and they've cast Adrian Brody. Before the yacht incident. <laughs> it's a, it's a direction I wouldn't have taken it in. <laughs> yeah. So in 2017, a reboot titled, uh, Kong, uh, Kong, <laughs> Kong <laughs> Skull Island, um, was released. I never saw this but apparently it exists. Um, It's this Kong who appears in the most recent Kong outing, which is Godzilla vs. Kong, which Candace saw and enjoyed.
3: Yes. Good movie.
2: (laughs) Um, These, I guess, remakes and sequels are a little bit controversial because Cooper assumed that he owned the rights to King Kong um, outright um, because he created him and made the film happen and that he'd licensed the character to RTKO for the initial film and its sequel, but he otherwise owned it. It wasn't until 1935 that he realized that something was probably amiss uh, when he was trying to get a Tarzan versus King Kong project off the ground for a pioneer pictures. Uh, There was a flurry of legal activity over the use of the Kong character and he came to realize that he did not have full control over his cinematic creation after all. Years later, so this is in the 1960s, Cooper found out that Arkeo was licensing the character to Toho Studios for the Godzilla um, vs. Kong pictures and he was really mad about it. Um, So he filed a lawsuit against the distribution company as well as Toho and Universal and then he also discovered that RKO had profited from licensed products uh, featuring King Kong, such as model kits, um, where you could make your own little Kong. Cool. And, I mean, it's cool. Uh, and in a letter to Robert Bendick. Uh, Cooper stated my hassle is about King Kong. I created the character long before I came to Arkeo and have always believed I retained subsequent picture rights and other rights. I sold to ArKO to make one original picture of King Kong and also later son of Kong. But that was all Cooper and his legal team then offered up various legal documents suggesting that he owned King Kong, but eventually the judge ruled that cooper had no rights because he lost all of the key documents saying that he did in fact own the rights to king kong so there was nothing to stop them licensing king kong out to toho which is you know sucks to suck but you really gotta get your lawyer on board right from the get-go yeah, if you wanna at this
3: point in time in the 60s universal is fighting a number of lawsuits in this vein. There's the very famous suit brought by Bela Lugosi Jr. regarding the use of his father's image, and ultimately in a major blow to the representation rights of actors, it being determined by the court that Universal owned Dracula, that incarnation of Dracula, therefore Universal owned Lugosi's image as Dracula, and that uh, the Lugosi estate would not be entitled to any proceeds, and really had no control over that imagery. You know, so the idea that, you you know, let alone, I mean, obviously I sympathize with Cooper with the idea that Kong is his brainchild, but even just the idea that your own face is is property of a movie studio.
2: Yeah, and I think Universal, even at the best of times, uh, was populated purely by assholes who were really out to make as much money as they could
3: after the after the um the ouster after the after the hostile board takeover in the 30s it it all really went downhill that's when you see James Whale being let go that's really when you when you see that end of that really that glorious reign of really unique and interesting filmmaking being done at Universal
2: yeah I mean regardless of where the licensing fell I think it's safe to say that even with the benefit that of advancing technologies, uh, none of these sequels or reboots or remakes ever really achieve the same level of spectacle as the original. And it is perhaps the very fact that it is a spectacle, something never before seen or technically achieved at that point when it, the original was released, um, that allows the original film to retain its cultural relevance nearly 100 years later. Even if you haven't seen King Kong, you know the references and you understand the basic underlying premise of the movie and so its impact on film I don't think can be understated or should be understated, uh, with everything from adventure films to horror films somehow taking inspiration from it. From questions of morality, of nature versus technology, of human folly and cruelty, all of these themes continue to be relevant in film today. Uh, we see it in things like alien and jurassic park i think candace is right in saying the fear of the unknown and of unexplored places is a, a predominant theme in horror and we see it being used over and over again they are all taking this inspiration from king kong um which is why i think it's fair to say that it is the granddaddy of horror in a way or that kind of creature feature horror especially Um, That would obviously later translate into science fiction horror and that kind of science fiction dinosaur adventure (laughs) film (laughs) his Jurassic Park. But with all of that in mind, I think it's fair to say that Cooper did achieve what he set out to do, which was make a picture about a really big gorilla fighting (laughs) some (laughs) dinosaurs. And with it, he created the greatest monkey movie ever made, which is uh, so big that I think it can definitely live up to its name as being the eighth wonder of the world. And it's uh, hard to imagine what horror movies especially would be like without it.
3: If only he had an ass to match. If
2: only. I mean, you can't give him everything, though, because then he's too powerful.
1: (laughs) Well, he would have bounced on it when he (laughs) fell from the uh, Empire State Building. So... Yeah.
3: Maybe he just supersede Maybe. the other seven wonders of the world and just <laughs> annihilate them all with his fat ass. I, I I don't know. I think colonial horror is one of my favorite subgenres. You know, and then you see this arc that goes. You know, you've got the King Kong white zombie era, and then you get kind of like I Walked with a Zombie, and then you get you know. Cannibal Holocaust, and then you get as then as we we evolve into these new kinds of monsters and new kinds of fears. You start, you know, you get shit like anaconda, big snake in, in you know what I mean in South, in South America. You got uh, you know, you get these zombie films that that are set in far off locales. Obviously, King Kong is this enduring symbol of Hollywood and this enduring symbol of filmmaking and all these things. But I think that every time I revisit it, what I'm most struck by is how seamless it is as a hollywood product that it really does manage to have this unifying cohesive vision even though it's not in in an auteur piece because you know i love to shit on the auteur theory but i love the idea that it really feels like this is a unique production in the sense that everyone who's who's in it is on the same page everyone who's working on it is achieving towards this one great singular goal which is scaring the shit out of people. And it, and it works. It, it works so beautifully. And um, I love the special effects. Um, I do wish some of the performances were different. I really think that the Bruce Cabot part should be like a Chester Morris or someone like that. I don't think Bruce Cabot works. <laughs> um, no. And I think Robert Armstrong's a little bit of a dud and whatever, you know, but that's so much to the side because, again, who's thinking about performance when you, you see that that big boy? It's all about the big boy
2: it's all about the big boy that's why i think it's okay that the performances aren't great because really you're here to see one thing and that thing is Kong. could it have been better if there were better acting performances sure but also i'm not paying attention to them anyway regardless i mean you imagine if you will orson welles <laughs>
3: As fair right?
2: <laughs> i still think my eyes would be on the prize which should be king kong although saying that now it's hard to say it would be good <laughs> it would be extremely good imagine orson welles as denim i think it would be very good <laughs> but that's also because i can imagine orson welles Suggesting to bring back the giant ape that killed like twenty of your crew members. Orson probably. I can see him doing
3: that. Also, would have produced a much more nuanced racial take. This is Voodoo Macbeth era Orson. We would have gotten some really thought provoking. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? The man, the mad red Conrad. He would have known what he was talking about, as opposed to these clowns we have instead. But you know, can't have everything. Orson didn't understand that. That's why he gained so much weight.
2: Yes. Yeah, so as always. um... You can keep in contact with us on our social media, which is at BasketPod on Instagram and Twitter, even though we have not been posting there. And please, if you like this, uh, like and subscribe. No, that's YouTube. (laughs) Subscribe and give us a a five-star rating wherever you listen. (laughs) You're just straight Um, up asking (laughs) demanding
3: a five-star rating.
2: (laughs) I don't know what to say. I've completely forgotten my normal outro. Please leave a rating and a review wherever you listen. I mean, if it's a bad review, why are you leaving it in the first place? Uh, go out and do something else with your
1: day. Go <laughs> touch
3: some grass. Bye.
1: Bye. <laughs> Bye.
2: Because Denim hasn't actually... I'm not
0: sure I understand.
2: Okay, Siri. Thanks. Um,
3: <laughs> why? Why did it do that? <laughs> Let's try that again. Oh my God! There's like a party going on a couple streets over, and at first I thought they were playing "Viva La Vida" by Coldplay, and I was so <laughs> embarrassed <laughs> for these people. <laughs> it wasn't. It was mariachi music, but I, I was like, wow, lame <laughs> party stars.